0: Oh, I still like that movie after uh, all, these, all these years, loosely based on the, uh, the story of T.C. Williams High School in uh, Northern Virginia, uh, and just a couple of lines there that are still uh, so powerful from that, that scene that uh, we are still fighting the same fight today as they were 150 plus years ago. And then he reminded us that if we don't come together, we too will be destroyed. You see, racism is a destroyer. It's a destroyer of individuals. It's a destroyer of families, of communities, of nations. It's, it's the crusher and the, the destroyer and the distorter of souls. And I think at its core, it breaks the heart of God and as we think about all the conversation that's taking place in our nation and we have to think that racism as a destroyer breaks the heart of God and it ought to break our hearts as well. Perhaps the the prayer of Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision and Samaritan's Purse is still so appropriate even for this moment. Let my heart Be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken over the reality of racism and all that it does. But there's a lot of conversation, and as we'll talk about next week, sometimes there's not a lot of communication, even though there's a lot of conversation and a lot of noise but as we, we think about the, this topic, we uh, built the foundation last week when we talked about what the Bible has to say about race. Today we wanna look about what does the Bible have to say about racism? And it may help us to have a, at least a beginning definition or description. Uh, the Merriam-Webster dec- Dictionary has this definition, although interestingly enough, just this week, uh, they, they were kinda getting some pressure that their definition is inadequate. It's not full enough, and so they uh, have promised to kind of update their definition for future editions of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. But here's their current definition. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. A doctrine or political program based on the assumption of racism designed to execute its principles and a political or social system founded on racism. Now, I don't know if any of that does anything for you at all, but let me try to look at it a different way. Let's take a few moments and look at the the faces of racism. What, What does it kind of look like in operation? And I want us to think around kind of four categories if we can. The first would be personally mediated racism, personally mediated racism. This is when one person dishonors another person based on their race and it was most clearly and blatantly be seen in, in hateful remarks or hateful actions and certainly there's, there's enough history of that uh, uh, all around our world and certainly as part of our nation's history and my guess is that just about every one of us in the room would say today, well that's not me. I'm I'm not a racist because I don't engage in personally mediated racism. Sometimes we say stuff like, well, there's not a racist bone in my body. Well, let's go on. Because while I hope that personally mediated racism isn't a part of our stories, uh, there's other faces of racism One of the faces that we might call institutionalized racism. And this is the creating of environment structures or systems that make it more difficult for certain racial groups to take advantage of the opportunities that are afforded to others. And this has been sadly part of the fabric of our nation Uh, almost from its beginning. Let me just give you a a few uh, examples. At the turn of the 20th century, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed by Congress and signed into law. It was the first significant law restricting immigration into the United States. These laws remained in effect from 1882 till 1943, and they negatively affected the upward social mobility of an entire generation of Chinese Americans in our country. The Chinese were depicted as parasitic locusts, and the satirical name for a Chinese man was Ching Chong Ding Dong. That was the culture. The Irish were targets of racism in early America. In 1798, Congress passed three alien acts based on fears of Irish Catholics, immigrating to the US. Those already living in America were excluded from many parts of civilized society with signs reading, no Irish need apply, hanging in storefronts. And there were depictions of Irish as these Celtic ape men with sloping foreheads and monstrous appearances portrayed through the media. Historians of the time designated the Irish as fated to remain a massive lump in the community, undigested and undigestible. From 1848 to 1928, at least 232 people of Mexican descent were killed by mob lynchings in Texas alone. Latinos were subjected to Juan Crow laws that segregated Hispanics and Latinos from white people with signs reading, we serve whites only. No Spanish or Mexicans regularly posted in public establishments. One more. From 1934 to 1968, The Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, institutionalized racism against black people through a policy that's been known as redlining. Redlining is the practice of denying or limiting financial services to certain neighborhoods based on their racial or ethnic compositions without regard for the individual resident's qualifications or credit worthiness. The term redlining refers to the practice of using a red line on a map to delineate areas where financial institutions would not invest. The vast majority of red line neighborhoods were black neighborhoods, and there's some evidence that perhaps some of those practices continue even to this day. Now, the list could go on and on and on, but I'll, I would just encourage you to check out a, a resource. Some of you may have already seen this. Uh, Phil Vischer, who actually was the creator of VeggieTales, right? Uh, put together a video, you can find it online. We've given you the, uh, the link in your, your notes. It's there on the screen. Uh, it's about a 17, almost 18-minute watch. Uh, but he, he kind of walks through some of this in, in much more detail. And I, it's sobering, but I would encourage you. Uh, to check that out. Brenda Salter McNeil puts it well. It says, you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people. It's not just about me not being personally hateful toward another, but it's also, am I concerned enough to evaluate policies that may intentionally or unintentionally be hurting other people. And that leads to a third face of racism, what we might call unintentional or unaware racism. And that's just being unaware or insensitive to the challenges and struggles of someone of another race and how our words or our actions may impact them. And there's lots and lots of stories, but uh, read one, and maybe some of you have, have come across these words as well, uh, by a, a Christian hip hop artist, Shai Lin. And Shy was uh, written to; he was a friend of his, a white female fellow believer, reached out to him following the murder of George Floyd, and just to say, "How are you doing?" And he took a little while to respond. But he began to just kind of write out some of what he was experiencing. And I just wanna share some of these words because I think it might be helpful to some of us. Sister, I am brokenhearted and devastated. I feel gutted. I haven't been able to focus on much at all since I saw the horrific video of George Floyd's murder. The image of that officer with hand in pocket as he calmly and callously squeezed the life out of that man while he begged for his life is an image that will haunt me until the day I die. But it's not just the video of this one incident. For many black people, it's never about just one incident. Just as it wasn't just about the videos of Eric Garner or Tamir Rice or Philando Castile or Sandra Bland or Laquan McDonald or Walter Scott or Rodney King, etc., etc., etc. This is about how being a black man in America has shaped both the way I see myself and the way others have seen me my whole life. It's about being told to leave the sneaker store as a 12-year-old because I was taking too long to decide which sneakers I wanted to buy with my birthday money, and the white saleswoman assuming that I was in the store to steal something. It's about being handcuffed and thrown into the back of a police car while walking down the street during college, and then waiting for a white couple to come and identify whether or not I was the one who committed a crime against them, knowing that if they said I was the one, I would be immediately taken to jail. No questions asked. It's about walking down the street as a young man and beginning to notice that white people, women in particular, would cross to the other side of the street to avoid walking past me and me beginning to preemptively cross to the other side myself to save them the trouble of being afraid and to save me the humiliation of that silent transaction. It's about taking a road trip with my sons to visit Blair's family in Michigan. And my greatest fear being getting pulled over for no reason other than driving while black, told to get out of the car, cuffed, and sat down on the side of the road, utterly emasculated and humiliated, with my young boys looking out the window, terrified, which is exactly what happened to a good friend of mine when he took his family on a road trip. It's about the exhaustion of constantly feeling I have to assert my humanity in front of some white people I'm meeting for the first time to let them know, hey, I'm not a threat. You don't need to be afraid. If you got to know me, I'm sure we have things in common. It's about me sometimes asking my wife to do things in certain customer service situations since I know she'll likely get treated far better than I will. It's about borrowing a baby swing from a white friend in our mostly white suburb of D.C. and her telling me, sure, you can borrow it, but I have to step out. I'll leave it on the porch for you. Just go grab it. And then feeling heart palpitations as my car approached her home, debating whether or not to get the swing and being terrified as I walked up the steps that someone would think I was stealing it and call the cops on me. It's about intentionally making sure the car seats are in the car, even if the kids aren't. So that when, not if, it happens all the time, I'm stopped by the police. They will perhaps notice the car seats and also the wedding band on one of my visible hands on the wheel, which I've been taught to keep there and not move until he tells me to. And even then, in an exaggeratedly slow manner, and will perhaps think to myself, This man is married with a family and small kids like me. Maybe he wants to get home safely to his family just like I do. It's about having to explain to my four-year-old son at his mostly white Christian school that the kids who laughed at him for having brown skin were wrong and that God made him in his image and that his skin is beautiful. After he told me, Daddy, I don't want brown skin, I want white skin. It's about having what feels like genuine fellowship with my white brothers and sisters who share the same Reformed theology until I mention racism, injustice, or police brutality, at which point I'm looked at skeptically as if all of a sudden I've embraced a social gospel or I'm some kind of liberal or social justice warrior. It's about sometimes feeling like some of my white friends aren't that particularly interested in truly knowing me at least not in any meaningful way that might actually challenge their preconceptions. Rather, it feels like they use me to feel better about themselves because I check off the black friend box. Much more could be mentioned. These were the first things that came to my mind. So when I watch a video like George Floyd's, it represents for me the fresh reopening of a deep wound and the reliving of layers of trauma that get exponentially compounded each time a well-meaning white friend says all lives matter. Of course they do. But in this country, black lives have been treated like they don't matter for centuries. And present inequities in criminal justice, income, housing, healthcare, education, etc., show that all lives don't actually matter like they should. Sometimes we're just unaware. Not intentionally hatred, but we're just unaware. And there's a fourth face of racism that maybe we don't think about much at all, and that is what we might call internalized racism. And internalized racism is when a person begins to adopt the negative views and labels that others have given them. They they begin to to internalize some of the messages that they've received from culture, they've received from others, and it becomes part of their their self-understanding, their self-image instead of being grounded in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many faces of racism, but whatever its face, it's evil. And we want to look for a few moments at the evil of racism, the evil of racism. Racism at its core is an equal opportunity destroyer, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we think only, only a certain group as a as a victim, uh, but racism destroys anybody that's involved in it. Or rather, is whether you're the recipient of that or the perpetrator of that, racism is a destroyer. At its core, racism is not simply a skin problem. We talked last week about uh, about how little 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 difference there is, really, even in our skin. It's not primarily a skin problem, it's a sin problem. It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of a a life disconnected from God. Racism is a sin that makes our distinctions and differences into something that divides us instead of something that enriches us. It is that sin that breaks the heart of God, And it manifests itself as we fail to recognize and therefore end up dishonoring the image of God in another human being who is different in some small way from us. That's why we started with a theological foundation last week of all of us uniquely created by God in the image of God. And when I treat someone as less than that, I am dishonoring. I am dishonoring the God who made them. I am dishonoring the image of God within them. I'm dishonoring the connectedness and commonality that we have by God's creation design. But really racism is a form of otherism. Otherism is a sin. It's it's when I begin to, to, to treat someone who is other than me who is different from me and I I begin to treat them uh, differently or or, or inferior or or, or whatever it may be and we all struggle with this, right? We we have in groups and out groups, right? The, The in groups are the folks that are like me. The others are not like me in some way, form, or fashion. And sometimes that's about the amount of melanin in our skin, sometimes it's about something else. Socioeconomics, region of the country, beliefs. But this otherism and it's it built on pride and fear. Pride that somehow I am superior to someone who is other than me, who is different from me. Or a fear, a fear of an unknown, a fear of somebody who is different from me. And racism is one expression of this otherism. And God's word condemns any partiality that we extend based on otherism. One example of that is James's letter in the New Testament. And in the context, he's talking about uh, the the way that you treat rich and poor. Uh, But it's applicable to a lot of others, otherisms. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory... What, what Somebody is different from you. Somebody is other than you. Whether that's the, the pigment in their skin, the language they speak, where they were raised, what food they like, how they, the traditions they have, their socioeconomic status, whatever it is, show no partiality. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, but... If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whenever I engage in partiality based on the fact that somebody is other, I am sinning. And to give you a a sense of how seriously God takes this, I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, to Moses himself. And as we we find, as he's leading the the people out of captivity in Egypt, he's leading them toward the promised land, there is this, this challenge, this challenge to his leadership. It comes from actually his own brother and sister. But notice what the scripture says, what this challenge is based on. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Why? Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Scholars have debated what... Nationality, a Kushite might be. Actually, the Hebrew word translated Kushite there is translated Ethiopian in other parts of the Old Testament. They're challenging him. And there may be multiple factors, maybe leadership, maybe pride, ego, power, I don't know. But what they present is the issue is that he married a Kushite woman. And to show you how seriously God takes this, he calls them out to the tent of meeting. There is that presence of God in the cloud. And if you skip down to verse 10, when the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. It's as if God was saying, Miriam, you wanna make a big deal about skin? You want to you want to make a big deal about somebody being other because of their sin? Then let me show you. She was struck with leprosy, this skin disease that immediately made her other. Immediately, she could not be with everyone else in the camp. Immediately, she would be isolated and pushed off to the side because of her skin. It's as if God was saying, "I take this very, very seriously." And he dealt with it. Racism can be a sin of commission. Is It is conscious or maybe even sometimes unconscious, but it's actions taken that perpetuate racism. And so there is a, a sin of commission. There are things that I do, things that I say. Uh, maybe I don't even know I'm doing or saying them, but they, they perpetuate racism. But racism can also be a sin of omission. That there are things that we could do, particularly as a follower of Jesus Christ, but we do not do to alleviate the problem. And James goes on to say, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. That's why. You'll hear folks use language like, it's not enough just not to be a racist. (laughs) That means I'm hopefully not exercising sins of commission. (laughs) But I actually and actively need to be engaged to be anti-racist. If I know there is something that I can do in God's power, and I fail to do it, to alleviate the sin of hurting of another. I'm responsible. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I, I've been immersing myself heavily in this for a few weeks, and I, I just began to notice this week, I finally like a little bit of self-awareness that this was, this was wearing me out. I mean, my, it was breaking my heart and it was just crushing my spirit. And I was just feeling just incredible heaviness with this, and maybe, maybe that's where some of you are right now. Even as you hear some of the things I've tried to share, there's so, 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 so much more. You may begin to feel that heaviness. I don't want to leave us there, because I really do believe there's a hope. There's a hope that transcends racism. There's a hope beyond, and if anybody ought to be dealers in hope, it ought to be those who follow Jesus Christ. And I think that hope is found in God's love for us. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, John is writing this beloved disciple, and he says, There is no fear. In love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is the hope beyond racism? It's God's love. It's God's love for us and God's love through us to other people. See, fear is a driver of racism and it's also an ugly byproduct of racism. Fear, we fear other, we fear unknown, we fear different, and that fear can sometimes drive behaviors which actually end up further isolating, uh, further uh, causing combative behavior, further feeding fear, and there's a whole lot of fear and anger and hatred in our culture and our society right now, and it's not just around race issue. I mean, good grief, we can't even have a political conversation, right? calls you and I to another way he calls us to the way of our master he calls us to love because we have been loved that we don't have to fear the other Those who are different because we have been fully accepted in Jesus Christ. There is a security in his love that frees us to be able to enjoy diversity, enjoy differences in other people. Who knows a Clemson and Carolina fan might actually be able to get along, right? I hope that's not asking for too much, right? Think God's love, we have a, can have a unity. A unity through a mutual honor. At its core, racism dishonors. But God calls us to honor. Honor the image of God in one another. Honoring the presence of God's image in every person. Instead of settling for stereotypes or avoiding one another in fear. That those who are secure in God's love for them who know that they were created in the image of God have been set free. That fear no longer controls them but they can begin to reach out, reach across, build bridges where others burn bridges. Letting fear control us dishonors God, others, and ourselves. And so my challenge for me and for you is through the the love of Jesus Christ to move beyond our fears. And I want to suggest to you not the last word on this, but four things that can maybe begin. Maybe you've heard that old acrostic, fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. We have, we have had a whole culture operating on false evidence that appears real. It is time for the people of God to operate on that which is truly real, what God says in His Word. And so I want to just encourage you to kind of rethink that acrostic fear, F E A R, and let's, let's rename it for the purposes of, of moving beyond. The F uh, is, well, let me give you this quote from Rick. I'm sorry, I skipped it. Anytime, Rick Warren said, I give it to fear instead of facing a difficult situation in faith, I miss God's will. Anytime, I let fear dictate my decisions. I'm gonna miss God's best and that's true for all of our lives so how do I move beyond well the F is to face your history face your own personal history what what have been your personal experiences we we probably all have had a mixed bag we probably have all had experiences that feed stereotypes I have I'm sure you have How have those helped shape your perceptions today? And as you think about your own personal history, is there a need for personal repentance? Or maybe in your own personal history there's some bitterness. And that needs to be removed and released through forgiveness. We gotta face our history, particularly our personal history to be able to move forward. Face your history. The E is to get educated. Get educated about the other, about someone who is different from you, if I can take you back to the uh, the movie, remember the Titans, there's a scene further in the movie where uh, the football team is, is now kind of come coming together across racial lines It's certainly not not perfect but but uh, they've they begun to bond and is starting to have an influence even on others and uh, they're beginning to pile up victories and at one uh, night after they, they won the game there some of the players they're, they're walking and hanging out and Three of the players, Sunshine, who's the white quarterback, Blue and Petey, Blue and Petey are both black, they are going down, and, and Sunshine says, let's go in and get something to eat. And Blue and Petey say, I don't think that's a good idea. He so, said, well, no, 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 I'm buying, I'm buying, there's nothing, come on, come on, come on. No, 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 they don't serve people like us in there. No, it's not, not a good And finally he says, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, you're with me, it'll be fine. And they go in the door and they're met by a stone-faced manager who quickly tells them they're not welcome there. They will not be seated and they will not be served if they want some food to go around to the back. And they make their way out the door and Humiliated, embarrassed, angry, all of those things. And they kind of start shouting at each other. And, and Petey, in particular, is yelling at Sunshine, the white quarterback. And he says, You know, just, I told you, I told you, I told you this wasn't a good idea. I told you this was going to happen. And Blue's kind of trying to play the peacemaker. And he says, He didn't know, Petey, he didn't know, he didn't know. And then Petey shouts back that one line, just so memorable. He says, He didn't want to know. powerful because sometimes we don't want to know I got enough going on in my own life right I got my own problems I got my own challenges nobody handed me anything Recognizing our blind spots is so crucial. So let me ask you. Do you want to know? Do you really want to know? Are you willing to have somebody speak into your life? Are you willing to have a conversation? Are you willing to read a book? Are you willing to watch a a video? Are you willing... To learn what you don't know, to get educated about the other. And that works always. That's not just a one way street. Everybody has to engage in that. But to get educated about the other. And then as you do, the A is to adopt. Adopt new ways of thinking and speaking and acting and praying in light of biblical truth. Henry Blackaby said years ago, you cannot go with God and stay where you are at the same time. You cannot go with God and remain the same. That if you're going to walk with God, he's going to stretch you, he's going to change you, he's going to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and that is going to require that you and I adopt new ways of thinking and speaking and acting and praying in light of what we're learning about our blind spots, what we're learning about ourselves, but what God has to say to us in his word. And then the R is for relationships. To build relationships, recognizing the image of God in everyone. And this this can be so catalytic. Someone said that relationships resolve racism. I don't know if it's that simple, but it's a big head start. That if we just begin to relate, not just a token friendship, but in real connection. As we build relationships, recognizing the image of God in the other, we may begin to recognize how much connects us rather than what little divides us. And if any people should be on the front lines of moving beyond fear, It should be the people of God, should it not? As Paul wrote to Timothy, for God gave us a different spirit, the Holy Spirit. He has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control to push beyond our fears. So here's my challenge as we close. Let's replace racism with gracism. This isn't my term. I stole it. Let's replace racism with gracism. Let's, let's bring that big G. Let's, let's bring God into the equation. And what is gracism? Gracism can be described as going above and beyond to extend grace to those who are different from us, especially to those who have been oppressed or dismissed in this world because of their race, class, or culture. We're going to go above and beyond to extend grace to those who are other, who are different from us in some way. And after all, isn't that how Jesus loved us? Isn't that who we're called to be as a new community we talked about last week who live by a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Did Jesus not extend to us grace above and beyond to reach us when we were separated by our sin, when we were as other from a holy God as you could possibly be? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me close with the words of Fred Rogers, perhaps better known as Mr. Rogers. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. We need some heroes. We need some heroes who are willing to say, (laughs) I'm not gonna just blow it off and say, it's not my child, it's not in my community, it's not my world, it's not my problem. But men and women of God, compelled by the love of God, seeing the image of God, even in those who are other, who will see a need and respond. What if? What if the body of Christ raised up a generation of heroes going forth not in fear, but in the power of God's love? Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, how we do thank you. that <laughs> You loved us enough that you saw our great need Need created by our sin, and you called us to yourself because you intervened in sending Jesus Christ to do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. And Father, that is the model, that is the love, that is the life that you have called us to. And Father, we, we have all done it so, so, so imperfectly, but Lord, would you, would you graciously change us from the inside out? And use us at this critical juncture to be among those who see the need and respond. Father, that's going to perhaps look a lot different, lots of variety with every one of us. Lord, would you show us, show us where to start. We can't do everything, but Father, by your grace, we can do one thing the one thing you have called us to do. And so we present ourselves to you now. Use us for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.